Jeremiah chapter 27. We're going to read the first 11 verses. It says, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. And send them to the king of Edom and the king of Moab and the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. And command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, and by my great power, and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field, I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. In chapter 26, in chapter 27, and chapter 28, we see Jeremiah suffering for the preaching of the truth. Now, you may not be able to see it, but between chapter 26, when Jeremiah is preaching in the temple and he finds himself accosted and arrested and incarcerated, between chapter 26 and chapter 27... Twelve years have gone by. Twelve years as Jeremiah continues to slug and to fight and to preach and to teach. Now Jeremiah will give a graphic illustration. He's going to build a yoke and he's going to attach it to his neck with leather straps. And with a yoke around his neck, he's going to deliver the same message to three different audiences. The audiences are going to include the surrounding kings who have sent emissaries, ambassadors, or envoys to Jerusalem to form an alliance against Babylon and 
to, to persuade the king of Judah and his officials to rebel. And then he's going to address Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And then he's going to address the priests and the prophets and the singular message to the nations and the singular message to Zedekiah and the singular message to the priests and the prophets is submit to God. Don't rebel against God. Do not resist the plan of God. Do not resist the will of God. Do not resist God's plans and purposes, but to submit to God and submit to his plans and purposes. You know, John Calvin was right when he wrote, quote, owing to the false opinion of his own excellence, which every person entertains, there is no one who patiently endures that others should rule over him. The apostle cuts off by a single word all disputes of this kind by demanding that all who live under the yoke shall submit to it willingly. It was Calvin's way of saying God has ordained authorities. God is God. He rules heaven and earth. He made the heavens and the earth. God has placed people in authority, nations and kingdoms. Problem. We are by nature rebellious creatures. Almost certainly if your first language is English or Spanish or French or Italian, the first word you learned as a kid growing up was now. It wasn't yes, it wasn't okay, it was no. We are by nature opposed to surrender. So how do we come to the place where we're willing to cease and desist our rebellion against God, surrender to God, submit to God? George Mueller, who was very famous at the turn of the 19th century, he established orphanages and ministries throughout England, George Mueller used to say that he first asked and settled this question concerning any proposed measure. He would ask himself three questions. He would say, is this the Lord's work? Then he would ask, is this the Lord's way? And then he would ask, is this the Lord's time? When you come across anything and you say, is this something that the Lord wants? Is this done the Lord's way? And is this the Lord's timing? It's going to give you a clue of how to submit. In verse 1, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar subdued the former Egyptian territories. It says in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 7, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. In 597 B.C., he subdues Jerusalem by laying siege to the city. He takes the city and he begins a deportation of the first group of its citizens. King Jehoiachin surrendered. King Nebuchadnezzar took many of the temple treasures and the scientists and the technicians and the high value citizens as hostage. In other words, Jeremiah took the cream of the crop. 
people like Daniel and his three friends. He took them, he enslaved them, and he marched them the 800 miles to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar then installed Zedekiah as a puppet king to do his will. You'll find that in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. In verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. Jeremiah is going to give a sermon illustration. But it's going to be a living illustration. Some of you growing up may have seen a live nativity scene where there is a guy who's playing Joseph and there's a lady playing Mary and there's a child playing Jesus. And you've got goats and sheep and camels and it's all live. Jeremiah is going to give a live presentation And the bonds are chains and shackles. And the yoke is a vivid symbol of submission. And by the way, the yoke or the ox yoke was made with bars and leather straps. There were different kinds of yokes. Sometimes they were made from a single piece of wood and they would be put over the, the oxen's head. Some were leather straps that would be tied to the horns. And then there would be... One piece of wood and another piece of wood that would be tied together with leather strips and then they would be placed over the oxen. So sometimes they were tied to the horns. Sometimes they were tied to the neck of the animal. We're not told which kind of yoke that he makes, but he puts it on. And in verse three, it says, and he send them to the king of Edom and the king of Moab. These are. The areas or the territories that are east of the Dead Sea that comprise the modern state of Jordan, the king of Tyre, which is to the north, and the king of Sidon to the north, these are the territories and harbor cities that would occupy present-day Lebanon by the hand of the messengers who came to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, the king of Judah." Zedekiah is established as a puppet king, but there's something inside of him that wants to throw off the yoke of submission. Remember, one of the reasons why Nebuchadnezzar has sacked the city, if you will, and put it under his rule is because they refused to pay tribute. Now they're under the rule and the control and Zedekiah is wondering whether or not he should throw off The oppression. The nations do not come under the bondage. Well, let me be blunt. The nations do not want to come under the bondage and control of Babylon. They want what most people want. Freedom. They don't want to be controlled by Babylon. They don't want to be taxed by Babylon. They don't want to be taken advantage of by Babylon. They don't want to be conscripted by Babylon. But that's the very definition of surrender, isn't it? Surrender isn't giving up something you don't want. Surrender is giving up something that you do want. Hence the name surrender. People want freedom. People despise slavery. 
people despise bondage. We were made in such a way that we want to be free. But there's something also inside of us that is wicked and malevolent and selfish. We also want to be free from God. We want to be free from his orders, his commandments. There's something inside of us that says we don't want to be controlled by God and we don't want to be told what to do. We want the freedom to reject God and to embrace sin and to satisfy ourselves. And most people don't want to surrender to God and they don't want to surrender to the commandments of God and they don't want to surrender to the Messiah of God. The king's attempt to form an alliance to resist the Babylonian encroachment in their territories. And the message of Jeremiah includes the news that this bondage and this encroachment is really all a part of God's plan and God's purpose. As Wearsby writes, what these politicians needed was not clever strategy, but submission to Babylon. But Babylon is 800 miles away. And Tyre and Sidon is just a few miles to the north. And the cities of Moab and Ammon are just across the Dead Sea. Ambassadors or envoys or or messengers from the cities, they come to Zedekiah for either one of two purposes. Either to persuade him to form an alliance, to resist Nebuchadnezzar's plan and strategy... Or to strategize about how they're going to make it difficult for Nebuchadnezzar to control them. And it would appear that at this particular point, the false prophets and the false teachers are making open prophecies that the Babylonian oppression is not going to last long and it's soon going to be removed. They were literally walking through the streets saying, this is temporary. This is temporary. This isn't going to last long. Even though we're under subjection right now, it's not going to last long. It's going to be just only a few more years before the people who are taken from us are going to be returned. The treasures that were stolen from us, they're going to be returned. But the Lord says, and command them. That is the envoys, the messengers to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. Here's how the message begins. What is the basis of submission? The Lord says, I'm the Lord of hosts. That means I'm the commander of the invisible armies of the universe. And I happen to be the God of Israel. And um, I happen to be the creator of the planet Earth. I made the orb that you're living on. Everything in it. I created human beings. I created all of the animal life on the planet. By my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And therein lies the great divide of submission. God says, I made the earth and I made you and I have the right to tell you what to do. 
I have the right to order the past and the present and the future. I have the right to establish relationships and disestablish relationships. I have the right to make governments and dissolve governments. I have the right to do what I see fit according to the plans and purposes that I have made. So God created man and beast. God has great power. God has sovereign. God makes decisions on the basis of his judgment. But I want you to understand something. Most people don't really believe that. Most people think that they are the captain of their own fate. The envoys, the messengers, and the ambassadors, as they go back to their kings, the kings of Tyre and Sidon think that they're the kings of their little kingdoms. The kings of Ammon and Moab think that they're the kings of their kingdom. The kings in Egypt think that everything that is in Egypt belongs to them. In other words, they will listen to a sermon or they'll listen to a thing and they'll, they'll know in their mind that in, in reality they know that they didn't create the heavens and the earth. They know in, in their mind that their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' fathers before them didn't create the planet and they didn't create all life on the earth. There's something inside of us that seems to understand that there's something rather than nothing and that there's probably a God and that God probably did create everything. But there's something perverse and wicked inside of us that seems to indicate that we want to do what we want to do. And the Lord continues and says, and now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant and the beasts of the field. I have also given him to serve him. In other words, as hard as this is for you to believe and as as reluctant as you are to embrace it, human history is unfolding in such a way that I'm going to discipline Israel. And in that disciplinary process, I'm going to elevate Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to discipline Judah and Jerusalem. And I'm going to discipline the nations all around Judah and Jerusalem. And there's something really, really unsettling in verse 6. Where it says, and now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Look what it says after that. My servant. You're kidding, right? He's your servant. Later on, uh, earlier in Isaiah, remember Cyrus isn't even simply called servant. He's called even using a stronger term, anointed. So why, why in the stinking world does God refer to a pagan king as my servant? What's the right answer? Because the king is serving God's purposes. Just like in our country and society. Do we have unanimous leadership who love God and serve God and submit to God? Do we have leaders in Washington, D.C.? Do we have leaders on the Supreme Court? Do we have leaders who say, we love God and we love the Bible and we want justice and righteousness in the United States of America? For the most part, what do you think the answer is? I'm going to go with, for the most part, no. 
they'll give lip service to the fact that you sent them to their office, that they were elected by the people. But for whatever reason, once they get in their office and once they go to their particular jobs, they think that they are by divine right leaders. Now, here's part of the point that the Lord is making in this particular passage. Because the king is serving God's purposes, God has planned, God has orchestrated, God has sovereignly made the circumstances that he has made. Paul takes the passage in Jeremiah very seriously. As a matter of fact, he might have this passage in mind when he's quoting in Romans chapter Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, there is no authority except from God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. God has established the authorities. God has, see, this is what's going to be maybe difficult for you to understand. You mean God has established even wicked authorities? Yeah. I mean, God has made Kim Jong-il, who's now dead and embracing whatever eternal reward he's going to embrace. Kim Jong-il, he's the dictator of his little country in North Korea. He enslaves and subjugates the people and uses them for his own wicked purposes. And now he's dead. Do you think he's going to get his reward? What do you think the answer is? He will get his reward. Why would God allow Kim Jong-il to rule in North Korea and make it one of the most wicked, desperate places on the planet with so much opposition to the plan of God and what seems like the will of God and the work of God? I don't know the answer to that because I don't have the mind of God. I don't know why God does everything that God does, but God is wise and God is good and God knows exactly what he's doing in our country and in this world and in this this city and in this church. It says in verse 7, so all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes and then Many nations and great kings shall make him serve him. Okay, the expression shall serve him and his son and his son's son. It's an idiomatic expression that means for a long time. In other words, remember the false prophets are walking around saying it's going to be over with a year, two years at the most. And what Jeremiah is saying is, no, this person is going to be raised up for a season. But part of the point of of verse seven is, is this. The captivity and the plan has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come into power. His son is going to come into power. Perhaps his grandson is going to come into power. The point is that there's going to come a point where the plans and the purposes that God is enacted for Babylon will cease to exist. And by the way, within four generations, three generations, Nebuchadnezzar, after his son and then after his son's son, within a period of 70 years... Babylon would fall 
in a single day, the Medes and the Persians would overrun Babylon and this incredible empire would collapse in a moment and it would be over with. The point? God's plans have a beginning and a middle and an end. God's plans for humanity has a beginning, middle, and an end. God's plan to redeem human beings has a beginning, middle, and an end. The reality of Jesus coming and living a perfect life and dying on the cross and then rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. And even though it seems like a very, very long time since Jesus left and went to heaven and when Jesus is going to come back, God has a plan. God has a plan for this planet. He has a plan for the nations on this planet, just like he has a plan for you. Your life will have a beginning and your life will have a middle and your life will have an end. And one day you'll understand the beginning of your life and the middle of your life and the end of your life. As a matter of fact, the son of Nebuchadnezzar was a guy named Evil Merodach. Can you imagine? Who in their right mind would name their kid Evil? I think it's because in the Babylonian language, Evil isn't like Evil Knievel like in our language. Evil Merodach was deposed, he was executed, he was succeeded by his brother-in-law, Neregletzar, who would who was not descended from Nebuchadnezzar. But by the time you get to the grandson, the empire is collapsed. It says, great kings shall make him their slave. And that's exactly what happens. The Medes and the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And you can find all of that cool stuff out in, in Daniel chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. And in verse 8 it says, And it shall be that the nation and the kingdom which shall not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord. Here's the point. If you refuse to voluntarily submit to my plan, you'll be punished. That's the point. And look what the punishment is. With the sword, with famine, with pestilence, until I've consumed them by his hand. In other words, the Lord promises punishment for the nations that refuse to submit. By the way. There was punishment for the nations that refused to submit because Tyre and Sidon, because Ammon and Moab didn't submit right away. There was a huge problem. Now, you've got to understand something in the grand scheme of things. Does Nebuchadnezzar want to wipe out all civilization in Tyre, in Sidon, in Jerusalem and in Ammon and Moab? The answer is no. Because when you wipe out everybody and you kill everyone and you wipe out the crops and you kill all the animals, does that produce income? No. Dead people can't work. Dead animals can't reproduce. It's not number one on his list to kill everybody. You might think that it was in America that we first said, give me liberty or, you know, you know the saying, it's in New Hampshire, you know, live free or die. 
For the people who said, give me liberty or give me death, Nebuchadnezzar would say, death it is. And then he would wipe everybody out. Here's the point. Rebellion and a refusal to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, according to Jeremiah, was a refusal to submit to God. Now, do we always have it that clear? Is it always that clear? Uh, does that mean that if Hitler decides I want to take over all of Europe and I want to obliterate the Jews, then, hey, that's just the way it's going to be and you're going to submit or die? Or is it OK to resist and rebel against wickedness? I'm going to suggest to you that it is OK to resist wickedness and to resist evil and to resist wicked governments that enslave their people. But I'm also going to suggest to you that this is a particular time with a specific message and divine revelation that Jeremiah is able to provide. So rebellion and revolution against Nebuchadnezzar is going to prove futile since God has ordained a plan and a purpose that he is going to unfold. And the plan and the purpose is going to include disciplining Judah and Jerusalem, but also creating a mechanism where the prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And in verse nine, it says, therefore, do not listen to your prophets. Your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers who speak to you saying you shall not serve the king of Babylon. In other words, in their world, ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC said, no, we're not going to have to serve Babylon. All the voices said all of the things that they wanted to hear. The threat of Babylon and the national crisis brought all of the religious quacks and all of the charlatans out of the woodwork with a false message of peace. And they came with a message that everybody wanted to hear. This is what everybody wanted to hear. The bondage is temporary. The crisis is temporary. The enslavement is temporary. And soon life is going to return to exactly the way you want it, where you get to be in charge. The false message of peace was welcomed by those who would rather have a false hope and who would rather have wishful thinking than listen to the truth from God and from God's word. And so the prophet gives the, the abbreviated message. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. Point. If you listen to the false prophets, you're all going to die. If you don't hear what God has to say, it's going to go very, very bad for you. And so. If the leaders follow their counselors advice. They will be exiled. They will be killed. Look at verse 11. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. In other words, here's the message. If you submit to the king, you're going to live. If you resist the king, you're going to die. The nations that submit to the king of Babylon will be permitted, 
continued existence and security. So, Jeremiah's message goes to the first group of people. Now, Jeremiah's message is going to go to the second group of people. In verse 12, I also spoke to Zedekiah, the equivocating, half-hearted, spineless jellyfish, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. So how do you think Zedekiah received the message? Not really. Now, I want you to see the picture. Here's Jeremiah in the king's palace, wearing a yoke, delivering this message. Can you see how this could go bad? The message is a summary of the message delivered to the king's envoys. Submit to Babylon or die. Don't listen to the false prophets. They're not really speaking for God. Jeremiah even uses the plural in verse 12. Bring your necks. Why do you suppose he's saying necks? Because he's not limiting it to Zedekiah, but all of the princes in the house of Judah. In verse 13, he says, why will you die? You and your people by the sword, by the famine and the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. The idea, it doesn't have to go badly. We could live. All we have to do is submit to God and stop resisting him. By the way, there's a principle here. You know what the principle is? Have you rebelled against God in the past? Have you disobeyed God in the past? Have you done weird and wicked things in the past? Well, yeah. I can't help you with that. Are there consequences for weird and wicked and sinful things that we do? Is there forgiveness and hope in Christ Jesus the Lord? Yeah. So what's the principle? The principle is no matter how weird and wicked you've been in the past. Stop. Cease, desist, call it a day, say no more today's look, no more drinking, no more drugging, no more this, no more that. Let's call it a day. Let's turn from our wickedness and our sin. Let's honor him now. Let's obey him now. Let's serve him now. What about the past? Past is over with. What about all the weird and wicked things and the consequences? There are consequences for the weird and wicked things. But guess what? If you purpose in your heart to love him today and obey him today and serve him today, I promise you tomorrow's going to be better. It's always a good idea. It's always a good idea <laughs> to cease and desist from sin and embrace righteousness. And so he says, look, it doesn't have to go badly. Therefore, verse 14, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. In other words, if you're committed to rebelling and disobeying against God, is it easy to find someone who will reinforce your rebellion? What are those people telling you? They're telling me, they're telling me to stop drinking and stop drugging and stop fornicating. And what did you say? Okay. Are you crazy? 
No more partying, no more drinking, no more doing all of this. They don't have any right to tell you what to do. Who died and made them God? You get to decide what you're going to do. And if you want to have fun, who cares? If you want to have a little drink, who cares? If you want to have a little fun, who cares? If you want to have a little, a little rebellion and disobedience, it's not such a bad thing. And even if they're right, even if they're right, even if God is God, and if, even if everything they say about him is true, and if everything in the Bible is true, you can always repent later. You can change later. You can cease and desist tomorrow. Or depending on how much fun you're having, day after tomorrow. But by the way, every day that you choose to remain in rebellion, are things going to get better or are they going to get worse? I guarantee you that they're going to get worse. And Jeremiah saying, they're prophesying a lie to you. The king was warned. Don't listen to the deceptive messages of the false prophets. The false prophets are speaking lies in the name of the Lord. <gasps> they would do that? Someone would actually get on TV or radio and they would say, this is what God really wants you to do. God wants you to trust your feelings. Thus says the Lord, trust your feelings. And stupid you, you say, where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't say that in the Bible. The Bible says that the just will live by faith, not by feelings. The Bible says that you're going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Bible says that you are going to listen carefully and attentively to all that God says. And then you're going to ask God to give you the grace and the mercy and the power to live a life of submission and obedience to what he wants. But King Zedekiah was weak and he would equivocate and he would vacillate and he would delay. In verse 15, it says, for I have not sent them, says the Lord, yet they prophesy a lie in my name that I may drive you out, that you may perish and you and the prophets who prophesy to you. In other words, look what it says, for I have not sent them. Wicked people who claim to speak for God, but God never sent them, yet they prophesy a lie in my name that I may drive you out. In other words, the lie has the net effect of doing exactly the opposite of what God really wants. You know what the Bible says? That it's will that none perish, but all have everlasting life. The Bible says this, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what do you think that means? That God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked, that he's up there going, I can't wait for that wicked sinner to die so I can send him or her to rot in a Christless hell. That would be a big N.O. He takes no pleasure. You know why we know that he takes no pleasure? Why else would God have this incredible plan to send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? Why then would he actually allow his son to experience the sacrifice 
and the pain and the punishment that you deserve. All of history and all of the Bible and all of the story of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection point to something amazing. That God has been working and God has been at work making sure that no one has to go to hell and that no one has to live a life estranged from him. And so then he passes it on to the priests and the prophets in verses 16 through 22. It says, also, I spoke to the priests and to all of the people saying, thus says the Lord, do not Listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. When Nebuchadnezzar came, when he captured the city, when he took the people captive, he also took the furniture in the temple with him to Babylon. Now, the the temple furnishings were very important in temple worship. The false prophets were basically saying the temple furnishings would soon return. Remember, the furnishings were made of gold and bronze. This is the plunder. Jeremiah knew it was a lie. Jeremiah knew that the furniture would not be coming back anytime soon. As a matter of fact, the treasures won't return until the time of Ezra in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then only In an incomplete manner. The important thing wasn't to rescue the temple furnishings. In other words, here's what the, the prophets are saying. The things that we need in order to worship God, according to the scriptures, are on their way back. If we have all of the components to keep the religious wheels turning, we'll be fine. And Jeremiah is saying, don't you understand what's at risk here? We shouldn't be trying to save the furniture. We should be trying to save the future. I want you to think about this for a moment. If your house is burning down, are you going to try to rescue the furniture or are you going to try to rescue your children? What do you take out of the burning flames? You take out of the burning flames the things that you can never, ever get back. And Jeremiah is pleading with them and saying, you know what? The only way to avoid death and the only way to avoid total destruction is to submit to God. And the only way To avoid destruction. And the only way to avoid discipline or punishment is to fully, finally, completely try to figure out what God is saying and going, Lord, I'm going to submit to you. In my marriage, I'm going to submit to you on the job. I'm going to submit to you from my heart. Lord, it's you that I want to submit to. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 40 through 50, it includes some of the stuff that was taken. Bronze pots, shovels, basins for the sacrificial ritual, the golden altar, the golden table for the showbread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, the lamps and the tongs of gold, the cups, the candle snuffers, the bases and the dishes for the incense, the 
fire pans of gold, the golden door sockets. Babylon takes them out and takes them away. And in verse 17, it says, do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid waste? Jeremiah, what are my choices? Submission or destruction? Verse 18. But if they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts, that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and at Jerusalem will not go to Babylon. Here's Jeremiah's taunting them. The false prophets are saying, the people are on their way back, and the treasures are on their way back. And Jeremiah's taunting and going, oh, are these guys real prophets? And are they praying to God and God listens to them? Hey, if they're really prophets and God really hears them, let's pray a different prayer. Let's pray, Lord, if you're really God and if you're really um, listening to me and if you're really speaking to me and if the words that I'm saying are true, then prevent the rest of the treasures or the articles or the furnishings that are still here. Pray that those also won't be taken. By the way, will the rest of the articles be taken? Yes. Will the temple itself be completely destroyed? Yes. Will the city be burnt? Yes. Because they won't listen. They won't obey. They won't submit. By the way, the Babylonians would schedule a second deportation in 597 at the beginning of Zedekiah's reign. And you're going to find that out again in in chapter 28, verse 1. The false prophets. Here's the bottom line. One prophet was telling the truth. Which one do you suppose it was? Jeremiah. There's a reason why the text calls them false prophets. Because they're lying. And in verse 19, it says, for thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts and concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Jeconiah, by the way, is the private name of King Jehoiachin, the pillars, the sea, the stands were massive objects that are described in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 15 through 37. Do you know why Nebuchadnezzar didn't take those things away? Because they were huge. They were almost impossible to cart. By the way, when they do destroy Jerusalem, they're going to have to take these objects and break them down into little pieces. Imagine, to put it in terms maybe we can all understand, imagine someone invaded the United States of America And they were going to take the Statue of Liberty as their trophy. You think it would be pretty difficult to just sort of tear it off of its foundation, put it on your little tugboat and chug back to wherever you came from? It would be pretty, pretty difficult. Imagine you go to Egypt and you go, I'm taking these pyramids home with me. It's not as easy as just loading them up in the back of your van and leaving. And that's part of the point that's being made. And so, in verse 21, it says, Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon, and there they shall be. 
until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. Here's here's the prophecy of Jeremiah. Everything inside of the temple is going bye bye. When will they come back? Here's the prophecy of Jeremiah. When I bring them back. By the way, the message of Jeremiah ends on a note of hope. When it says they shall be carried to Babylon and there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. At the end of the 70 years of captivity. God is going to visit his people. God is going to return the people to the land. In Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2, it says that even in judgment, there's mercy. Do you realize that even in discipline, even in judgment, God is merciful? Well, I'm afraid to stop doing what I'm doing because I'm afraid God will punish me. No. Don't simply be afraid of the punishment or the discipline of God. Be aware. Believe in the mercy of God and the grace of God and the long suffering of God and the patience of God. You know, we live in a world where we're taught to believe that most victories come from fighting. But we rarely hear about the victories that come by submitting. Thomas Akempis wrote, carry the cross patiently and with perfect submission. And in the end, it will carry you. In other words, God has a plan and you should submit to his plan. God has a Messiah and you should submit to his Messiah. The man that trusts God is the man that can be trusted. The woman who trusts God is the woman that can be trusted. Ask not how, but trust him still. Ask not when, but wait his will. Simply on his word rely. God shall all your needs supply. No wonder the Bible says in Proverbs 2, verses 5 through 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. When George Mueller was asked the secret of his service, he said, quote, There was a day when I died, utterly died. And as he spoke, he bent lower and lower until he almost touched the floor, quote, died to George Mueller, died to his opinions, died to his preferences, died to his tastes and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved to God. That's submission. That's submission. Submission comes on the day that you die. And the day that Jesus Christ lives inside of you.
And like Paul said, the life that I now live, I live by the power of Jesus who lives inside of me. When God has the adoration of your heart and the power of your will and the influence of your life. The greatness of a single life is measured in the surrender of that life to the plan of God, to the will of God, to the purpose of God, to the future that God has for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that we would learn life's lessons of submission. That, Lord, we could, like the Bible says, learn to submit to God. That, Lord, we would learn to value one another. That we could submit to one another in love. That, Lord, we could do what the Bible says, that we could esteem one another better than the other. And that, Lord, like Paul, we would consider ourselves dead. And that whatever life we have, we live by the power of God and by the grace of God and by the mercy of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the love of Jesus, because of the promises of Jesus. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, so that in humility and submission, Lord, we would have wisdom to hear from you. So that we could know your plan and submit to your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.